What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 9 of Far From The Manning Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far From The Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 9. The Homestead. A Visitor. Half Confidences. By daylight the bower of Oak's new-found mistress, Bathsheba Everdeen, presented itself as a hoary building of the early stage of classic renaissance as regards its architecture, and of a proportion which told at a glance that, as is so frequently the case, it had once been the memorial hall upon a small estate around it, now altogether effaced as a distinct property, and merged in the vast tract of a non-resident landlord, which comprised several such modest domains. Fluted pilasters, worked from the solid stone, decorated its front, and above the roof the chimneys were panelled or columnar, some coped gables with finials and like features still retaining traces of their Gothic extraction. Soft brown mosses, like faded velveteen, formed cushions upon the stone tiling, and tufts of the house-leek or sengreen sprouted from the eaves of the low surrounding buildings. A gravel walk, leading from the door to the road in front, was encrusted at the sides with more moss. Here it was a silver-green variety, the nut-brown of the gravel being visible to a width of only a foot or two in the centre. This circumstance, and the generally sleepy air of the whole prospect here, together with the animated and contrasting state of the reverse façade, suggested to the imagination that on the adaptation of the building for farming purposes the vital principle of the house had turned round inside its body to face the other way. Reversals of this kind, strange deformities, tremendous paralyses, are often seen to be inflicted by trade upon edifices, either individual or in the aggregate as streets and towns, which were originally planned for pleasure alone. Lively voices were heard this morning in the upper rooms, the main staircase to which was of hard oak, the balusters, heavy as bedposts, being turned and moulded in the quaint fashion of their century, the handrail as stout as a parapet-top, and the stairs themselves continually twisting round, like a person trying to look over his shoulder. Going up, the floors above were found to have a very irregular surface, rising to ridges, sinking into valleys, and being just then uncarpeted, the face of the boards was seen to be eaten into innumerable vermiculations. 
Every window replied by a clang to the opening and shutting of every door. A tremble followed every bustling movement, and a creak accompanied a walker about the house like a spirit wherever he went. In the room from which the conversation proceeded, Bathsheba and her servant companion, Lady Smallbury, were to be discovered sitting upon the floor, and sorting a complication of papers, books, bottles, and rubbish spread out thereon, remnants of the household stores of the late occupier. Liddy, the maltster's great-granddaughter, was about Bathsheba's equal in age, and her face was a prominent advertisement of the light-hearted English country girl. The beauty her features might have lacked in form was amply made up for by perfection of hue, which at this winter-time was the softened ruddiness on a surface of high rotundity that we meet with in a Terborg or a Gerard Dow, and, like the presentations of these great colourists, it was a face which kept well back from the boundary between comeliness and the ideal. Though elastic in nature, she was less daring than Bathsheba, and occasionally showed some earnestness which consisted half of genuine feeling and half of mannerliness, superadded by way of duty. Through a partly open door the noise of a scrubbing-brush led up to the charwoman, Mary Ann Money, a person who for a face had a circular disc, furrowed less by age than by long gazes of perplexity at distant objects. To think of her was to get good-humoured, to speak of her was to raise the image of a dried Normandy pippin. "'Stop your scrubbing a moment.' said Bathsheba through the door to her. I hear something. Marianne suspended the brush. The tramp of a horse was apparent, approaching the front of the building. The paces slackened, turned in at the wicket, and, what was most unusual, came up the mossy path close to the door. The door was tapped with the end of a crop or stick. "'What impertinence!' said Liddy in a low voice, to ride up the footpath like that. Why didn't he stop at the gate? Lord! "'Tis a gentleman. I see the top of his hat.' "'Be quiet,' said Bathsheba. The further expression of Liddy's concern was continued by aspect instead of narrative. "'Why doesn't Mrs. Coggan go to the door?' Bathsheba continued. "'Rat-tat-tat-tat!' resounded more decisively from Bathsheba's oak. "'Mary Ann, you go,' she said, fluttering under the onset of a crowd of romantic possibilities. "'Oh, ma'am, see, here's a mess!' The argument was unanswerable after a glance at Mary Ann. "'Liddy, you must,' said Bathsheba. Liddy held up her hands and arms, coated with dust from the rubbish they were sorting, and looked imploringly at her mistress. "'There, Mrs. Coggan is going,' said Bathsheba, exhaling her relief, in the form of a long breath which had lain in her bosom a minute or more. The door opened, and a deep voice said, "'Is Miss Everdeen at home?' "'I'll see, sir.' said Mrs. Coggan, and in a minute appeared in the room. "'Dear, what a tart-over place this world is,' continued Mrs. Coggan, a wholesome-looking lady who had a voice for each class of remark according to the emotion involved, who could toss a pancake or twirl a mop with the accuracy of pure mathematics, and who, at this moment, showed hands shaggy with fragments of dough, and arms encrusted with flour. "'I'm never up to my elbows, miss, in making a pudding but one of two things do happen. Either my nose must needs begin tickling, and I can't live without scratching it, or somebody knocks at the door. Here's Mr. Boldwood wanting to see you, Miss Everdeen. A woman's dress being a part of her countenance, and any disorder in one being of the same nature with a malformation or wound in the other, Bathsheba said at once, I can't see him in this state. Whatever shall I do? Not at homes were hardly naturalised in weathery farmhouses, so Liddy suggested, 
"'Say you're a fright with dust and you can't come down.' "'Yes, that sounds very well,' said Mrs. Coggan, critically. "'Say I can't see him. That will do.' Mrs. Coggan went downstairs and returned the answer as requested, adding, however, on her own responsibility, "'Miss is dusting bottles, sir, and is quite a object. That's why it is.' "'Oh, very well.' said a deep voice indifferently. All I wanted to ask was if anything had been heard of Fanny Robin. "'Nothing, sir, but we may know to-night. William Smallbury has gone to Casterbridge, where our young man lives, as is supposed, and the other men be inquiring about everywhere.' The horse's tramp then recommenced and retreated, and the door closed. "'Who is Mr. Boldwood?' said Bathsheba. "'A gentleman farmer, a little Weatherbury.' "'Married?' "'No, miss.' "'How old is he?' Forty, I should say. Very handsome. Rather stern-looking and rich. "'What a bother this dusting is! I am always in some unfortunate plight or other,' said Bathsheba complainingly. "'Why should he inquire about Fanny?' "'Oh, because, as she had no friends in her childhood, he took her, and put her to school, and got her a place here under your uncle. He's a very kind man that way, but, Lord, there—' What? Never was such a hopeless man for a woman. He's been courted by sixes and sevens. All the girls, gentle and simple, for miles around have tried him. Jane Perkins worked at him for two months, like a slave. And the two Miss Taylors spent a year upon him, and he cost Farmer Ives's daughter nights of tears, and twenty pounds worth of new clothes. But, Lord, the money might as well have been thrown out of the window. A little boy came up at this moment and looked in upon them. This child was one of the Coggins, who, with the Smallbury's, were as common among the families of the district as the Avons and Derwents among our rivers. He always had a loosened tooth, or a cut finger, to show to particular friends, which he did with an air of being thereby elevated above the common herd of affectionate humanity, to which exhibition people were expected to say, Poor child! with a dash of congratulations as well as pity. "'I've got a penny!' said Master Coggan, in a scanning measure. "'Well, who gave it to you, Teddy?' said Liddy. "'Mr. Boldwood. He gave it to me for opening the gate. "'What did he say?' "'He said, "'Where are you going, my little man?' "'And I said, "'To Miss Everdeen's, please.' "'And he said, "'She's a staid woman, isn't she, my little man?' "'And I said, "'Yes.' "'You naughty child! What did you say that for?' "'Cause you gave me the penny.' "'What a pucker everything is in,' said Bathsheba, discontentedly, when the child had gone. "'Get away, Mary Ann, or, or go on with your scrubbing, or do something. You ought to be married by this time, and not here troubling me.' "'Ah, mistress, so he did. But what between the poor men I won't have, and the rich men who won't have me, I stand as a pelican in the wilderness.' "'Did anybody ever want to marry you, miss?' did he venture to ask when they were again alone. Lots of them, I dare say. Bathsheba paused, as if about to refuse a reply, but the temptation to say yes, since it was really in her power, was irresistible by aspiring virginity, in spite of her spleen at having been published as old. A man wanted to once, she said in a highly experienced tone, and the image of Gabriel Oak, as the farmer, rose before her. How nice it must seem, said Liddy, with the fixed features of mental realisation. "'And you wouldn't have him?' "'He wasn't quite good enough for me.' "'How sweet to be able to disdain, when most of us are glad to say, "'Thank you, 
I seem to hear it. No, sir, I'm your better, or kiss my foot, sir, my face is for mouths of consequence. And, and did you love him, miss? Oh, no, but I rather liked him. Do you now? Of course not. What footsteps are those I hear? Liddy looked from a back window into the courtyard behind, which was now getting low-toned and dim with the earliest films of night. A crooked file of men was approaching the back door. The whole string of trailing individuals advanced in the completest balance of intention, like the remarkable creatures known as chain salpe, which, distinctly organised in other aspects, have one will common to a whole family. Somewhere, as usual, in snow-white smock-frocks of Russian duck, and some in whitey-brown ones of drabbit, marked on the wrists, breasts, backs, and sleeves, with honeycomb-work, two or three women and pattens brought up the rear. "'The Philistines be upon us,' said Liddy, making her nose white against the glass. "'Oh, very well. Mary Ann, go down and keep them in the kitchen till I am dressed, and then show them in to me in the hall.'" End of chapter 9《ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・ハロー・She sat down at a table and opened a time-book, pen in her hand, with a canvas money-bag beside her. From this she poured a small heap of coin. Liddy chose a position at her elbow and began to sew, sometimes pausing and looking round, or, with the air of a privileged person, taking up one of the half-sovereigns lying before her and surveying it merely as a work of art, while strictly preventing her countenance from expressing any wish to possess it as money. Now. Before I begin, men, said Bathsheba, I have two matters to speak of. The first is that the bailiff is dismissed for thieving, and that I have formed a resolution to have no bailiff at all, but to manage everything with my own head and hands. The men breathed an audible breath of amazement. The next matter is, have you heard anything of Fanny? Nothing, ma'am. Have you done anything? I met Farmer Boldwood said Jacob Smallbury, and I went with him and two of his men, and dragged New Mill Pond, but we found nothing. And the new shepherd had been to Buck's Head at Yalbury, thinking she had gone there, but nobody had seen her, said Laban Tall. Hasn't William Smallbury been to Casterbridge? Yes, ma'am, but he's not yet come home. He promised to be back by six. It wants a quarter to six at present, said Bathsheba, looking at her watch. I dare say he'll be in directly. Well, now then, she looked into the book. Joseph Poorgrass, are you there? Yes, sir. Ma'am, I mean, said the person addressed. I be the personal name of Poorgrass. And what are you? Nothing in my own eye, in the eye of other people. Well, I don't say it, though public thought will out. What do you do on the farm? I, I do do carton things all the year, and in sea time I shoots the rooks and sparrows, and helps at pig-killing, sir. How much to you? Please, it's nine and ninepence, and a good halfpenny, where twas a bad one, sir, 
Ma'am, I mean. Quite correct. Now, here are ten shillings in addition as a small present, as I am a newcomer. Bathsheba blushed slightly at the sense of being generous in public, and Henry Frey, who had drawn up towards her chair, lifted his eyebrows and fingers to express amazement on a small scale. "'How much do I owe you? That man in the corner, what's your name?' continued Bathsheba. "'Matthew Moon, ma'am,' said a singular framework of clothes with nothing of any consequence inside them, which advanced with the toes in no definite direction forward, but turned in or out as they chanced to swing. "'Matthew Mark, did you say? Speak out, I shall not hurt you,' inquired the young farmer kindly. "'Matthew Moon, ma'am,' said Henry Frey, correctingly, from behind her chair, to which point he had edged himself. "'Matthew Moon,' murmured Bathsheba, turning her bright eyes to the book. Ten and twopence halfpenny is the sum put down to you, I see.' "'Yes, missus,' said Matthew, as the rustle of wind among dead leaves. "'Here it is, and ten shillings. Now, the next, Andrew Randall. You are a new man, I hear. How came you to leave your last farm?' "'Please, ma'am, please, ma'am, please, please, ma'am.' "'As a stammering man, ma'am,' said Henry Frey in an undertone, "'and they turned him away, because the only time he ever did speak plain, "'he said his soul was his own, and other iniquities, to the squire. "'I can cuss, ma'am, as well as you or I, "'but I can't speak a common speech to save his life.' "'Andrew Randall, here's yours. "'Finish thanking me in a day or two. Temperance Miller. Oh, here's another. Soberness. Both women, I suppose. Yes, ma'am. Here we be, I believe, was echoed in shrill unison. And what have you been doing? Tending threshing machine and wimbling a-bonds, and saying hoosh to the cocks and ends when they go upon your seeds, and planting early flower-balls and Thompson's wonderfuls with a dibble. Yes, I see. "'Are they satisfactory women?' she inquired softly of Henry Frey. "'Ah, oh, ma'am, don't ask me. Yielding women, as scarlet as pear as ever was,' groaned Henry under his breath. "'Sit down.' "'Who, ma'am?' "'Sit down.' Joseph Poorgrass in the background twitched, and his lips became dry with fear of some terrible consequences, as he saw Bathsheba summarily speaking, and Henry slinking off to a corner. Now the next. Laban Tall, you'll stay on working for me. For you or anybody that pays me well, ma'am, replied the young married man. True, the man must live, said the woman in the back quarter, who had just entered with clicking patents. What woman is that? Bathsheba asked. I be his lawful wife, continued the voice with greater prominence of manner and tone. This lady called herself five and twenty looked thirty, passed for thirty-five, and was forty. She was a woman who never, like some newly married, showed conjugal tenderness in public, perhaps because she had none to show. "'Oh, you are,' said Bathsheba. "'Well, Laban, will you stay on?' "'Yes, he'll stay, ma'am,' said again the shrill tongue of Laban's lawful wife. "'Well, he can speak for himself, I suppose.' "'Oh, Lord, not he, ma'am. A simple tool.' "'Well enough, but a poor gawk-hammer mortal,' the wife replied. "'He-he-he!' <laughs> laughed the married man, with a hideous effort of appreciation, for he was as irrepressibly good-humoured under ghastly snubs as a parliamentary candidate on the hustings. The names remaining were called in the same manner. 
Now, I think I have done with you, said Bathsheba, closing the book and shaking back a stray twine of hair. Has William Smallbury returned? No, ma'am. The new shepherd will want a man under him, suggested Henry Frey, trying to make himself official again by his sideways approach towards a chair. Oh, he will. Who can he have? Young Cain Ball's a very good lad, Henry said, and Shepherd Oak don't mind his youth, he added, turning with an apologetic smile to the shepherd, who had just appeared on the scene and was now leaning against the doorpost with his arms folded. No, I don't mind that, said Gabriel. How did Cain come by such a name? asked Bathsheba. Ah, you see, ma'am, his poor mother, not being a scripture-read woman, made a mistake at his christening, thinking twas Abel killed Cain, and called him Cain, meaning Abel all the time. The parson put it right, but twas too late, for the name could never be got rid of in the parish. Tis very unfortunate for the boy. It is rather unfortunate. Yes, however, we soften it down as much as we can, and call him Caney. Ah, poor widow woman! She cried her heart out about it almost. She was brought up by a very heathen father and mother, who never sent her to church or school, and it shows how the sins of the parents are visited upon the children, ma'am. Mr. Frey here drew up his features to the mild degree of melancholy required when the persons involved in the given misfortune do not belong to your own family. Very well, then. Caney Ball to be under shepherd. And you quite understand your duties, you, I mean, Gabriel Oak. Quite well, I thank you, Miss Everdeen, said Shepherd Oak from the doorpost. If I don't, I'll inquire. Gabriel was rather staggered by the remarkable coolness of her manner. Certainly nobody without previous information would have dreamt that Oak and the handsome woman before whom he stood had ever been other than strangers. But perhaps her air was the inevitable result of the social rise which had advanced her from a cottage to a large house and fields. The case is not unexampled in high places. When, in the writings of the later poets, Jove and his family were found to have moved from their cramped quarters on the peak of Olympus into the wide sky above it, their words show a proportionate increase of arrogance and reserve. Footsteps were heard in the passage, combining in their character the qualities both of weight and measure, rather at the expense of velocity. All. Here's Billy Smallbury, come from Casterbridge. And what's the news? said Bathsheba, as William, after marching to the middle of the hall, took a handkerchief from his hat and wiped his forehead from its centre to the remoter boundaries. "'I should have been sooner, miss,' he said, "'if I hadn't been for the weather.' He then stamped with each foot severely, and, on looking down, his boots were perceived to be clogged with snow. "'Come at last, is it?' said Henry. "'Well, what about Fanny?' said Bathsheba. "'Well, ma'am,' "'In round numbers she's run away with the soldiers,' said William. "'No, not a steady girl like Fanny.' "'I'll tell you all particulars. "'When I got to Casterbridge Barracks, "'they said the eleventh dragoon guards be gone away, "'and new troops have come. "'The eleventh left last week from Elchester and onwards. "'The route came from the government like a thief in the night, "'as is his nature to do. "'And afore the eleventh knew it almost, "'they were on the march. "'They passed near here.' Gabriel had listened with interest. "'I saw them go,' he said. "'Yes,' 
continued William, they pranced down the street playing the girl I left behind me, so tis said, in glorious notes of triumph. Every looker-on's inside shook with the blows of the great drum to his deepest vitals, and there was not a dry eye throughout the town among the public-house people and the nameless women. But they're not gone to any war. No, ma'am, but they be gone to take the places of them who may, which is very close connected. And so I said to myself, Fanny's young man was one of the regiment, and she's gone after him. There, ma'am, that's it in black and white. Did you find out his name? No, nobody knew it. I believe he was higher in rank than a private. Gabriel remained musing and said nothing, for he was in doubt. Well, we are not likely to know more to-night, at any rate, said Bathsheba. But one of you had better run across to Farmer Boldwood's and tell him that much. She then rose, but before retiring addressed a few words to them with a pretty dignity, to which her morning dress added a soberness that was hardly to be found in the words themselves. Now, mind you have a mistress instead of a master. I don't know yet my powers or my talents in farming, but I shall do my best, and if you serve me well, so shall I serve you. Don't any unfair ones among you, if there are any such, but I hope not. Suppose that because I am a woman I don't understand the difference between bad goings-on and good. All. Know him. Liddy. Excellent well said. I shall be up before you are awake, I shall be afield before you are up, and I shall have breakfasted before you are afield. In short, I shall astonish you all. All. Yes, m'm. And so good-night. All. Good-night, ma'am. Then this small Thesmethite stepped from the table and surged out of the hall, her black silk dress licking up a few straws and dragging them along with a scratching noise upon the floor. Liddy, elevating her feelings to the occasion from a sense of grandeur, floated off behind Bathsheba with a milder dignity not entirely free from travesty, and the door was closed. End of chapter 10《ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピーバースデーマリー・ハッピー if that may be called a prospect of which the chief constituent was darkness. It was a night when sorrow may come to the brightest without causing any great sense of incongruity, when, with impressible persons, love becomes solicitousness, hope sinks to misgiving, and faith to hope, when the exercise of memory does not stir feelings of regret at opportunities for ambition that have been passed by, and anticipation does not prompt to enterprise. The scene was a public path, bordered on the left hand by a river, behind which rose a high wall. On the right was a tract of land, partly meadow and partly moor, reaching, at its remote verge, to a wide, undulating upland. The changes of the seasons are less obtrusive on spots of this kind than amid woodland scenery. Still, to a close observer, they are just as perceptible. The difference is that their media of manifestation are less trite and familiar than such well-known ones as the bursting of the bud or the fall of the leaf. Many are not so stealthy and gradual as we may be apt to imagine in considering the general torpidity of a moor or waste. 
Winter, in coming to the country hereabout, advanced in well-marked stages, wherein might have been successfully observed the retreat of the snakes, the transformation of the ferns, the filling of the pools, a rising of fogs, the embrowning by frost, the collapse of the fungi, and an obliteration by snow. This climax of the series had been reached to-night, on the aforesaid moor, and for the first time in the season its irregularities were formed without features, suggestive of anything, proclaiming nothing, and without more character than that of being the limit of something else, the lowest layer of a firmament of snow. From this chaotic sky full of crowding flakes, the mead and moor momentarily received additional clothing, only to appear momentarily more naked thereby. The vast arch of cloud above was strangely low, and it formed, as it were, the roof of a large dark cavern, gradually sinking in upon its floor, for the instinctive thought was that the snow lining the heavens and that encrusting the earth would soon unite into one mass without any intervening stratum of air at all. We turn our attention to the left-hand characteristics, which were flatness in respect of the river, verticality in respect of the wall behind it, and darkness as to both. These features made up the mass. If anything could be darker than the sky, it was the wall, and if anything could be gloomier than the wall, it was the river beneath. The indistinct summit of the façade was notched and pronged by chimneys here and there, and upon its face were faintly signified the oblong shapes of windows, though only in the upper part. Below, down to the water's edge, the flat was unbroken by hole or projection. An indescribable succession of dull blows perplexing in their regularity, sent their sound with difficulty through the fluffy atmosphere. It was a neighbouring clock striking ten. The bell was in the open air, and, being overlaid with several inches of muffling snow, had lost its voice for the time. About this hour the snow abated. Ten flakes fell where twenty had fallen. Then one had the room of ten. Not long after a form moved by the brink of the river. By its outline upon the colourless background a close observer might have seen that it was small. This was all that was positively discoverable, though it seemed human. The shape went slowly along, but without much exertion, for the snow, though sudden, was not yet more than two inches deep. At this time some words were spoken aloud. One, two, three, four, five. Between each utterance the little shape advanced about half a dozen yards. It was evident now that the windows high in the wall were being counted. The word five represented a fifth window from the end of the wall. Here the spot stopped and dwindled smaller. The figure was stooping. Then a morsel of snow flew across the river towards the fifth window. It smacked against the wall at a point several yards from its mark. The throw was the idea of a man conjoined with the execution of a woman. And no man who had ever seen a bird, rabbit, or squirrel in his childhood could possibly have thrown with such utter imbecility as was shown here. Another attempt, and another, till by degrees the wall must have become pimpled with the adhering lumps of snow. At last one fragment struck the fifth window. The river would have been seen by day to be of that deep, smooth sort which races middle and sides with the same gliding precision, any irregularities of speed being immediately corrected by a small whirlpool. 
Nothing was heard in reply to this signal but the gurgle and cluck of one of these invisible wheels, together with a few small sounds, which a sad man would have called moans and a happy man laughter, caused by the flapping of the waters against trifling objects in other parts of the stream. The window was struck again in the same manner. Then a noise was heard, apparently produced by the opening of the window. This was followed by a voice from the same quarter. "'Who's there?' The tones were masculine, and not those of surprise. The high wall being that of a barrack, and marriage being looked upon with disfavour by the army, assignations and communications had probably been made across the river before to-night. "'Is it Sergeant Troy?' said the blurred spot in the snow, tremulously. This person was so much like a mere shade upon the earth, and the other speaker so much a part of the building, that one would have said the wall was holding a conversation with the snow. "'Yes,' came suspiciously from the shadow. "'What girl are you?' "'Oh, Frank, don't you know me?' said the spot. "'Your wife, Fanny Robin.' "'Fanny,' said the wall, in utter astonishment. "'Yes.' said the girl, with a half-suppressed gasp of emotion. There was something in the woman's tone which was not that of the wife, and there was a manner in the man which was rarely a husband's. The dialogue went on. "'How did you come here?' "'I asked which was your window. Forgive me.' "'I did not expect you to-night. Indeed, I did not think you would come at all. It was a wonder you found me here. I am orderly to-morrow. You said I was to come. Well, I said you might.' "'Yes, I mean that I might. You are glad to see me, Frank.' "'Oh, yes, of course. Uh, can you come to me?' "'My dear Fan, no. The bugle has sounded, the barrack gates are closed, and I have no leave. We are all of us as good as in the county gale till to-morrow morning.' "'Then I shan't see you till then.' The words were in a faltering tone of disappointment. "'How did you get here from Weatherbury?' "'I walked.' some part of the way, the rest by the carriers. I am surprised. Yes, so am I. And, Frank, when will it be? What? That you promised. I don't quite recollect. Oh, you do. Don't speak like that. It weighs me to the earth. It makes me say what ought to be said first by you. Never mind. Say it. Oh, must I? It is, when shall we be married, Frank? Oh, I see. Well, you have to get proper clothes. I have money. Will it be by bands or license? Bands, I should think. And we live in two parishes. Do we? What then? My lodgings are in St. Mary's, and this is not, so they will have to be published in both. Is that the law? Yes. Oh, Frank, you think me forward, I'm afraid. Don't, dear Frank, will you, for I love you so. And you said lots of times you would marry me, and—and I—I— Don't cry now. It is foolish. If I said so, of course I will. And shall I put up the bands in my parish, and will you in yours? Yes. Tomorrow? Not tomorrow. We'll settle in a few days. You have the permission of the officers? No, not yet. Oh, how is that? You said you almost had before you left Casterbridge. The fact is, I forgot to ask. Your coming like this is so sudden and unexpected. Yes, yes, it is. It was wrong of me to worry you. I'll go away now. Will you come and see me to-morrow, at Mrs. Twillis's in North Street? 
"'I don't like to come to the barracks. There are bad women about, and they think me one.' Uh, "'Quite so. I'll come to you, my dear. Good night.' "'Good night, Frank. Good night.' And the noise was again heard of a window closing. The little spot moved away. When she passed the corner, a subdued exclamation was heard inside the wall. "'Ho, ho, sergeant! Ho, ho!' An expostulation followed, but it was indistinct, and it became lost amid a low peal of laughter, which was hardly distinguishable from the gurgle of the tiny whirlpools outside. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 of Far From the Madding Crowd This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy, Chapter Twelve. Farmers, a rule, an exception. The first public evidence of Bathsheba's decision to be a farmer in her own person and by proxy no more was her appearance the following market day in the corn market at Casterbridge. The low though extensive hall, supported by beams and pillars, and latterly dignified by the name of Corn Exchange was thronged with hot men who talked among each other in twos and threes, the speaker of the minute looking sideways into his auditor's face and concentrating his argument by a contraction of one eyelid during delivery. The greater number carried in their hands ground ash saplings, using them partly as walking-sticks, and partly for poking up pigs, sheep, neighbours with their backs turned, and restful things in general, which seemed to require such treatment in the course of their peregrinations. During conversations each subjected his sapling to great varieties of usage, bending it around his neck, forming an arch of it between his two hands, overweighting it on the ground till it reached nearly a semicircle, or perhaps it was hastily tucked under the arm whilst the sample-bag was pulled forth, and a handful of corn poured into the palm, which, after criticism, was flung upon the floor, an issue of events perfectly well known to half a dozen acute town-bred fowls, which had, as usual, crept into the building unobserved, and waited the fulfilment of their anticipations with a high-stretched neck and oblique eye. Among these heavy yeomen a feminine figure glided, the single one of her sex that the room contained. She was prettily and even daintily dressed. She moved between them as a chaise between carts, was heard after them as a romance after sermons, was felt among them like a breeze among furnaces. It had required a little determination, far more than she had at first imagined, to take up a position here, for at her first entry the lumbering dialogues had ceased, nearly every face had been turned towards her, and those that were already turned rigidly fixed there. Two or three only of the farmers were personally known to Bathsheba, and to these she had made her way. But if she was to be the practical woman she had intended to show herself, business must be carried on, introductions or none, and she ultimately acquired confidence enough to speak and reply boldly to men merely known to her by hearsay. Bathsheba, too, had her sample-bag, and by degrees adopted a professional pour into the hand, holding up the grains in her narrow palm for inspection in perfect Casterbridge manner. Something in the exact arch of the upper unbroken row of teeth, and in the keenly pointed corners of her red mouth when, with parted lips, she somewhat defiantly turned up her face to argue a point with a tall man, suggested that there was potentiality enough in that lithe slip of humanity for alarming exploits of sex, and daring enough to carry them out. But her eyes had a softness, invariably a softness, which, had they not been dark, would have seemed mistiness 
As they were, it lowered an expression that might have been piercing to simple clearness. Strange to say of a woman in full bloom and vigour, she always allowed her interlocutors to finish their statements before rejoining with hers. In arguing on prices she held to her own firmly, as was natural in a dealer, and reduced theirs persistently as was inevitable in a woman. But there was an elasticity in her firmness which removed it from obstinacy, as there was a naivety in her cheapening which saved it from meanness. Those of the farmers with whom she had no dealings, by far the greater part, were continually asking each other, "'Who is she?' The reply would be, "'Farmer Everdeen's niece. Took on Weatherbury up our farm, turned away the bailey, and swears she'll do everything herself.' The other man would then shake his head. "'Yes, tis a pity she's so headstrong,' the first would say. "'But we ought to be proud of her here. She lightens up the old place. Tis such a shapely maid, however, that she'll soon get picked up. It would be ungallant to suggest that the novelty of her engagement in such an occupation had almost as much to do with the magnetism as had the beauty of her face and movements. However, the interest was general, and this Saturday's debut in the forum, whatever it may have been to Bathsheba as the buying and selling farmer, was unquestionably a triumph to her as the maiden. Indeed, the sensation was so pronounced that her instinct on two or three occasions was merely to walk as a queen among these gods of the fallow, like a little sister of a little Jove, and to neglect closing prices altogether. The numerous evidences of her power to attract were only thrown into greater relief by a marked exception. Women seemed to have eyes in their ribbons for such matters as these. Bathsheba, without looking within a right angle of him, was conscious of a black sheep among the flock. It perplexed her first. If there had been a respectable minority on either side, the case would have been almost natural. If nobody had regarded her, she would have taken the matter indifferently, if such cases had occurred. If everybody, this man included, she would have taken it as a matter of course. People had done so before. But the smallness of the exception made the mystery. She soon knew thus much of the recusant's appearance. He was a gentlemanly man, with full and distinctly outlined Roman features, the prominences of which glowed in the sun with a bronze-like richness of tone. He was erect in attitude, and quiet in demeanour. One characteristic preeminently marked him—dignity. Apparently he had some time ago reached that entrance to middle age, at which a man's aspect naturally ceases to alter for the term of a dozen years or so, and artificially a woman's does likewise. Thirty-five and fifty were his limits of variation. He might have been either, or anywhere between the two. It may be said that married men of forty are usually ready and generous enough to fling passing glances at any specimen of moderate beauty they may discern by the way. Probably, as with persons playing whist for love, the consciousness of a certain immunity under any circumstances, from that worst possible ultimate, the having to pay, makes them unduly speculative. Bathsheba was convinced that this unmoved person was not a married man. When marketing was over she rushed off to Liddy, who was waiting for her beside the yellow gig in which they had driven to town. The horse was put in, and on they trotted, Bathsheba's sugar, tea, and drapery parcels being packed behind, and expressing in some indescribable manner, by their colour, shape, and general lineaments, that they were the young lady farmer's property, and the grocer's and draper's no more. I've been through it, Liddy, and it's over. I shan't mind it again, for they will all have grown accustomed to seeing me there. But this morning it was as bad as being married. Eyes everywhere. 
"'I knowed it would be,' said Liddy. "'Men be such a terrible class of society to look at a body.' "'But there was one man who had more sense than to waste his time upon me.' The information was put in this form that Liddy might not for a moment suppose her mistress to be at all piqued. "'A very good-looking man,' she continued. "'Upright. About forty, I should think. Do you know at all who he could be?' Liddy could not think. "'Can't you guess at all?' said Bathsheba, with some disappointment. "'I haven't a notion. Besides, tis no difference, since he took less notice of you than any of the rest. Now, if he'd taken more, it would have mattered a great deal.' Bathsheba was suffering from the reverse feeling just then, and they bowled along in silence. A low carriage, bowling along still more rapidly behind the horse of unimpeachable breed, overtook and passed them. "'Why, there he is!' she said. Liddy looked. "'That? That's Farmer Boldwood. Of course it is. The man you couldn't see the other day when he called.' "'Oh, Farmer Boldwood,' murmured Bathsheba, and looked at him as he outstripped them. The farmer had never turned his head once, but with eyes fixed on the most advanced point along the road, passed as unconsciously and abstractedly as if Bathsheba and her charms were thin air. "'He's an interesting man, don't you think so?' she remarked. "'Oh, yes, very. Everybody owns it,' replied Liddy. "'I wonder why he's so wrapped up and indifferent, and seemingly so far away from all he sees around him. It is said, but not known for certain, that he met with some bitter disappointment when he was a young man and merry. A woman jilted him, they say. People always say that, and we know very well women scarcely ever jilt men. Tis the men who jilt us. I expect it is simply his nature to be so reserved. Yeah, simply his nature. I expect so, miss. Nothing else in the world. Still, tis more romantic to think he has been served cruelly, poor thing. Perhaps after all he has. Oh, depend upon it, he has. Oh, yes, miss, he has. I feel he must have. However, we are very apt to think extremes of people. I shouldn't wonder, after all, if it wasn't a little of both, just between the two. Rather cruelly used, and rather reserved. Oh, dear, no, miss. I can't think it between the two. That is most likely. Well, yes, so it is. I am convinced it is most likely. You may take my word, miss, that that's what's the matter with him. End of chapter 12「Chapter 13 of Far From the Madding Crowd This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy Chapter 13 Sortes Sanctorum The Valentine It was Sunday afternoon in the farmhouse on the 13th of February. Dinner being over, Bathsheba, for want of a better companion, had asked Liddy to come and sit with her. The mouldy pile was dreary in winter-time before the candles were lighted and the shutters closed. The atmosphere of the place seemed as old as the walls. Every nook behind the furniture had a temperature of its own, for the fire was not kindled in this part of the house early in the day, and Bathsheba's new piano, which was an old one in other annals, looked particularly sloping and out of level on the warped floor, before night threw a shade over its less prominent angles and hid the unpleasantness. Liddy, like a little brook, though shallow, was always rippling. Her presence had not so much weight as to task thought, and yet enough to exercise it. 
On the table lay an old quarto Bible bound in leather. Liddy, looking at it, said, "'Did you ever find out, miss, who you were going to marry by means of the Bible and key?' "'Don't be so foolish, Liddy, as if such things could be.' "'Well, there's a good deal in it all the same.' "'Nonsense, child.' "'And it makes your heart beat fearful. Some believe in it, some don't. I do.' "'Very well, let's try it.' said Bathsheba, bounding from her seat with a total disregard of consistency which can be indulged in towards a dependent, and entering into the spirit of divination at once. "'Go and get the front-door key.' Liddy fetched it. "'I wish it wasn't Sunday,' she said on returning. "'Perhaps it's wrong.' "'What's right weekdays is right Sundays,' replied her mistress, in a tone which is a proof in itself." The book was opened, the leaves drab with age, being quite worn away at much-read verses by the forefingers of unpractised readers in former days, where they were moved along under the line as an aid to the vision. The special verse in the Book of Ruth was sought out by Bathsheba, and the sublime words met her eye. They slightly thrilled and abashed her. It was wisdom in the abstract facing folly in the concrete. A folly in the concrete blushed persisted in her intention, and placed the key on the book. A rusty patch immediately upon the verse, caused by previous pressure of an iron substance thereon, told that this was not the first time the old volume had been used for the purpose. "'Now keep steady and be silent,' said Bathsheba. The verse was repeated, the book turned round. Bathsheba blushed guiltily. "'Who did you try?' said Liddy, curiously. "'I shall not tell you.' "'Did you notice Mr. Boldwood's doing in church this morning, miss?' Liddy continued, adumbrating by the remark the track her thoughts had taken. "'No, indeed,' said Bathsheba, with serene indifference. "'His pew is exactly opposite yours, miss.' "'I know it.' "'And you did not see his goings-on?' "'Certainly I did not, I tell you.' Liddy assumed a smaller physiognomy, and shut her lips decisively. This move was unexpected and proportionately disconcerting. "'What did he do?' Bathsheba said perforce. "'Didn't turn his head to look at you once all the service.' "'Why should he?' again demanded her mistress, wearing a nettled look. "'I didn't ask him to.' "'Oh, no, but everybody else was noticing you, and it was odd he didn't. There, tis like him, rich and gentlemanly. What does he care?' Bathsheba dropped into a silence intended to express that she had opinions on the matter too abstruse for Liddy's comprehension, rather than that she had nothing to say. "'Dear me, I had nearly forgotten the valentine I bought yesterday,' she exclaimed at length. "'Valentine? For who, miss?' said Liddy. "'Farmer Boldwood?' It was a single name among all possible wrong ones that just at this moment seemed to Bathsheba more pertinent than the right. "'Well, no.' It's only for little Teddy Coggan. I have promised him something, and this will be a pretty surprise for him. Liddy, you may as well bring me my desk, and I'll direct it at once." Bathsheba took from her desk a gorgeously illuminated and embossed design in post-octavo, which had been bought on the previous market-day at the chief stationers in Casterbridge. In the centre was a small oval enclosure, this was left blank, that the sender might insert tender words more appropriate to the special occasion than any generalities by a printer could possibly be. "'Here's a place for writing,' said Bathsheba. "'What shall I put?' "'Something of this sort, I should think,' returned Liddy promptly. 
The rose is red, the violet's blue, carnation sweet, and so are you. Yes, that shall be it. It just suits itself to a chubby-faced child like him, said Bathsheba. She inserted the words in a small, though legible handwriting, enclosed the sheet in an envelope, and dipped her pen for the direction. "'What fun it would be to send it to the stupid old Boldwood, and how he would wonder!' said the irrepressible Liddy, lifting her eyebrows, and indulging in an awful mirth on the verge of fear as she thought of the moral and social magnitude of the man contemplated. Bathsheba paused to regard the idea at full length. Boldwood's had begun to be a troublesome image, a species of Daniel in her kingdom, who persisted in kneeling eastward when reason and common sense said that he might just as well follow suit with the rest and afford her the official glance of admiration which cost nothing at all. She was far from being seriously concerned about his nonconformity. Still, it was faintly depressing that the most dignified and valuable man in the parish should withhold his eyes, and that a girl like Liddy should talk about it. So Liddy's idea was at first rather harassing than pique one. No, I won't do that. He wouldn't see any humour in it. He'd worry to death, said the persistent Liddy. Really, I don't care particularly to send it to Teddy, remarked her mistress. He's rather a naughty child sometimes. Yes, that he is. Let's toss, as men do, said Bathsheba idly. Now then, head, Boldwood, tail, Teddy. No, we won't toss money on a Sunday. That would be tempting the devil indeed. Toss this in book. There can be no sinfulness in that, miss. Very well. Open Boldwood, shut Teddy. Uh, no, it's more likely to fall open. Open Teddy, shut Boldwood. The book went fluttering in the air and came down shut. Bathsheba, a small yawn upon her mouth, took the pen, and with off-hand serenity directed the missive to Boldwood. Now light a candle, Liddy. Which seal shall we use? Here's a unicorn's head. There's nothing in that. What's this? Two doves? No. It ought to be something extraordinary, ought it not, Liddy? Here's one with a motto. I remember it is some funny one, but I can't read it. We'll try this, and if it doesn't do, we'll have another. A large red seal was duly affixed. Bathsheba looked closely at the hot wax to discover the words. Capital! she exclaimed, throwing down the letter frolicsomely. "'Twould upset the solemnity of a parson and clerk, too. Liddy looked at the words of the seal, and read, "'Marry me.' The same evening the letter was sent, and was duly sorted in Casteridge post-office that night, to be returned to Weatherbury again in the morning. So very idly and unreflectingly was this deed done. Of love as a spectacle Bathsheba had a fair knowledge, but of love subjectively she knew nothing. End of chapter 13Chapter 14 of Far From the Madding Crowd This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines Far From the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy Chapter 14 Effect of the Letter Sunrise At dusk on the evening of St. Valentine's Day, Boldwood sat down to supper as usual by a beaming fire of aged logs. Upon the mantel-shelf before him was a timepiece, surmounted by a spread eagle, and upon the eagle's wings was the letter Bathsheba had sent. Here the bachelor's gaze was continually fastening itself, till the large red seal became as a blot of blood on the retina of his eye, 
and, as he ate and drank, he still read in fancy the words thereon, although they were too remote for his sight. Marry me. The pert injunction was like those crystal substances which, colourless themselves, assumed the tone of objects about them. Here, in the quiet of Baldwood's parlour, where everything that was not grave was extraneous, and where the atmosphere was that of a Puritan Sunday lasting all the week, the letter and its dictum changed their tenor from the thoughtlessness of their origin to a deep solemnity imbibed from their accessories now. Since the receipt of the missive in the morning, Boldwood had felt the symmetry of his existence to be slowly getting distorted in the direction of an ideal passion. The disturbance was as the first floating weed to Columbus, the contemptibility little suggesting possibilities of the infinitely great. The letter must have had an origin and a motive. That the latter was of the smallest magnitude compatible with his existence at all, Boldwood, of course, did not know and such an explanation did not strike him as a possibility even. It is foreign to a mystified condition of mind to realise of the mystifier that the processes of approving a course suggested by circumstance, and of striking out a course from inner impulse, would look the same in the result. The vast difference between starting a train of events and directing into a particular groove a series already started is rarely apparent to the person confounded by the issue. When Boldwood went to bed he placed a valentine in the corner of the looking-glass. He was conscious of its presence even when his back was turned upon it. It was the first time in Boldwood's life that such an event had occurred. The same fascination that had caused him to think it an act which had a deliberate motive prevented him from regarding it as an impertinence. He looked again at the direction. The mysterious influences of night invested the writing with the presence of the unknown writer. Somebody's some woman's hand had travelled softly over the paper bearing his name. Her unrevealed eyes had watched every curve as she formed it. Her brain had seen him in imagination the while. Why should she have imagined him? Her mouth, were her lips pale or red, plump or creased, had curved itself to a certain expression as the pen went on. The corners had moved with all their natural tremulousness. What had been the expression? The vision of the woman writing, as a supplement to the words written, had no individuality. She was a misty shape, and well she might be, considering that her original was at that moment sound asleep, and oblivious of all love and letter-writing under the sky. Whenever Boldwood dozed she took a form, and comparatively ceased to be a vision. When he awoke there was a letter justifying the dream. The moon shone to-night, and its light was not of a customary kind. His window emitted only a reflection of its rays, and the pale sheen had that reversed direction which snow gives, coming upward and lighting up his ceiling in an unnatural way, casting shadows in strange places, and putting lights where shadows had used to be. The substance of the epistle had occupied him but little in comparison with the fact of its arrival. He suddenly wondered if anything more might be found in the envelope than what he had withdrawn. He jumped out of bed, in the weird light took the letter, pulled out the flimsy sheet, shook the envelope, and searched it. Nothing more was there. Boldwood looked, as he had a hundred times the preceding day, at the insistent red seal. "'Marry me,' he said aloud. The solemn and reserved yeoman again closed the letter, and stuck it in the frame of the glass. In doing so he caught sight of his reflected features, wan in expression and insubstantial in form. 
he saw how closely compressed was his mouth, and that his eyes were widespread and vacant. Feeling uneasy and dissatisfied with himself for this nervous excitability, he returned to bed. Then the dawn drew on. The full power of the clear heaven was not equal to that of a cloudy sky at noon, when Boldwood arose and dressed himself. He descended the stairs and went out towards the gate of a field to the east, leaning over which he paused and looked around. It was one of the usual slow sunrises of this time of year, and the sky, pure violet in the zenith, was leaden to the northward and murky to the east, where, over the snowy down or Ulysse on Weatherbury Upper Farm, and apparently resting upon the ridge, the only half of the sun yet visible burnt rayless, like a red and flameless fire shining over a white hearthstone. The whole effect resembled a sunset as childhood resembles age. In other directions the fields and sky were so much of one colour by the snow that it was difficult in a hasty glance to tell whereabouts the horizon occurred, and in general there was here too that before-mentioned preternatural inversion of light and shade which attends the prospect when the garish brightness commonly in the sky is found on the earth, and the shades of the earth are in the sky. Over the west hung the wasting moon, now dull and greenish-yellow like tarnished brass. Boldwood was listlessly noting how the frost had hardened and glazed the surface of the snow, till it shone in the red eastern light with a polish of marble, how in some portions of the slope withered grass-bents, encased in icicles, bristled through the smooth wan coverlet in the twisted and curved shapes of old Venetian glass, and how the footprints of a few birds, which had hopped over the snow whilst it lay in the state of a soft fleece, were now frozen to a short permanency. A half-muffled noise of light wheels interrupted him. Boldwood turned back to the road. It was the mail-cart, a crazy two-wheeled vehicle, hardly heavy enough to resist a puff of wind. The driver held out a letter. Boldwood seized it and opened it, expecting another anonymous one. So greatly are people's ideas of probability a mere sense that precedent will repeat itself. "'I don't think it's for you, sir,' said the man, when he saw Boldwood's action. "'Though there's no name on it, I think it's for your shepherd.' Boldwood looked then at the address. "'To the new shepherd, Weatherbury Farm, near Casterbridge.' "'Oh, what a mistake! It is not mine, nor is it for my shepherd. It is for Miss Everdeen's. You had better take it on to him, Gabriel Oak, and say I opened it in mistake.' At this moment, on the ridge, up against the blazing sky, a figure was visible, like the black snuff in the midst of a candle-flame. Then it moved and began to bustle about vigorously from place to place, carrying square skeleton masses, which were riddled by the same rays. A small figure on all fours followed behind. The tall form was that of Gabriel Oak, the small one that of George. The articles in course of transit were hurdles. "'Wait,' said Boldwood. "'That's the man on the hill. I'll take the letter to him myself.' To Boldwood it is now no longer merely a letter to another man. It was an opportunity. Exhibiting a face pregnant with intention, he entered the snowy field. Gabriel, at that minute, descended the hill towards the right. The glow stretched down in this direction, and touched the distant roof of Warren's malt-house, whither the shepherd was apparently bent. Boldwood followed at a distance. End of chapter 14
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy, Chapter Fifteen. A morning meeting. The letter again. The scarlet and orange light outside the malt-house did not penetrate to its interior, which was, as usual, lighted by a rival glow of similar hue, radiating from the hearth. The maltster, having lain down in his clothes for a few hours, was now sitting beside a tree-legged table, breakfasting off bread and bacon. This was eaten on the plateless system, which is performed by placing a slice of bread upon the table, the meat flat upon the bread, a mustard plaster upon the meat, and a pinch of salt upon the whole, then cutting them vertically downwards with a large pocket-knife till wood is reached, when the severed lump is impaled on the knife, elevated, and sent the proper way of food. The maltster's lack of teeth appeared not to sensibly diminish his powers at the mill. He had been without them for so many years that toothlessness was felt less to be a defect than hard gums and acquisition. Indeed, he seemed to approach the grave as a hyperbolic curve approaches a straight line, less directly as he got nearer, till it was doubtful if he would ever reach it at all. In the ash-pit was a heap of potatoes roasting and a boiling pipkin of charred bread, called coffee for the benefit of whomsoever should call, for Warren's was a sort of clubhouse, used as an alternative to the inn. "'I says,' says I, "'we get a fine day, and then down comes a snapper at night.' was a remark now suddenly heard spreading into the malt-house from the door, which had been opened the previous moment. The form of Henry Frey advanced to the fire, stamping the snow from his boots when about half-way there. The speech and entry had not seemed to be at all an abrupt beginning to the maltster, introductory matter often being omitted in this neighbourhood, both from word and deed, and the maltster having the same latitude allowed him did not hurry to reply. He picked up a fragment of cheese by pecking upon it with his knife, as a butcher picks up skewers. Henry appeared in a drab kerseymere greatcoat, buttoned over his smock-frock, the white skirts of the latter being visible to the distance of about a foot below the coat-tails, which, when you got used to the style of dress, looked natural enough, and even ornamental. It certainly was comfortable. Matthew Moon, Joseph Poorgrass, and other carters and wagoners followed at his heels, with great lanterns dangling from their hands which showed that they had just come from the cart-horse stables, where they had been busily engaged since four o'clock that morning. "'And how's she getting on without a bailey?' the maltster inquired. Henry shook his head, and smiled one of those bitter smiles, dragging all the flesh of his forehead into a corrugated heap in the centre. "'She'll rue it.' "'Surely, surely,' he said. "'Benji Pennyways were not a true man or honest Bailey, "'as big a betrayer as Judas Iscariot himself. "'But do you think she can carry on alone?' "'He allowed his head to swing laterally three or four times in silence. "'Never in all my creeping up, never.' "'This was recognised by all as the conclusion of some gloomy speech "'which had been expressed in thought alone during the shake of the head.' Henry, meanwhile, retained several marks of despair upon his face, to imply that they would be required for use again directly he should go on speaking. "'All'll be ruined, and ourselves too, or there's no mating gentlemen's houses,' said Mark Clark. "'A headstrong maid, that's what she is, and won't listen to no advice at all. Pride and vanity have ruined many a cobbler's dog. There, there, when I think it, I sorrows like a man in travel.' "'True, Henry, you do. I've heard ye,' 
said Joseph Poorgrass in a voice of thorough attestation, and with a wire-drawn smile of misery. "'To do a mortal man no harm to have what's under a bonnet,' said Billy Smallbury, who had just entered, bearing his one tooth before him. "'She can speak real language, and must have some sense somewhere. Do you follow me?' "'I do, I do, but no Bailey. I deserve that place,' wailed Henry signifying wasted genius by gazing blankly at visions of a high destiny apparently visible to him on Billy Smallbury's smock-frock. "'There twas to be, I suppose. Your lot is your lot, and Scripture is nothing. For if you do good, you don't get rewarded according to your works, but be cheated in some mean way out of your recompense.' "'No, no, I don't agree with thee there,' said Mark Clark. "'God's a perfect gentleman in that respect.' "'Good works, good pay, so to speak it,' attested Joseph Poorgrass. A short pause ensued, and, as a sort of entract, Emery turned and blew out the lanterns, which the increase of daylight rendered no longer necessary even in the malt-house with its one pane of glass. "'I wonder what a farmer-woman can want with a harpsichord, dulcimer, pianer, or whatever it is they call it,' said the maltster. "'Did he say if she've a new one?' got a pianer. Ah, seems her old uncle's things were not good enough for her. She bought all but everything new. There's heavy chairs for the stout, weak and wiry ones for the slender, great watches getting on to the size of clocks to stand upon the chimbley-piece. Pictures, for the most part wonderful frames. And long horsehair settles for the drunk, with horsehair pillows at each end, said Mr. Clark. Likewise looking-glasses for the pretty, and lion-books for the wicked." A firm loud tread was now heard stamping outside. The door was opened about six inches, and somebody on the other side exclaimed, "'Neighbours, have we got room for a few new-born lambs?' "'Ah, sure, shepherd,' said the conclave. The door was flung back till it kicked the wall and trembled from top to bottom with a blow. Mr. Oak appeared in the entry, with a steaming face, hay-bands round about his ankles to keep out the snow, a leather-strap round his waist outside the smock-frock, and looking altogether an epitome of the world's health and vigour. Four lambs hung in various embarrassing attitudes over his shoulders, and the dog George, whom Gabriel had contrived to fetch from Norcombe, stalked solemnly behind. "'Well, Shepherd Oak, and how's lambin' this year, if I mid say it?' inquired Joseph Poorgrass. "'Terrible trying,' said Oak. "'I've been wet through twice a day, either in snow or rain, this last fortnight. Can you know you haven't tined their eyes to-night?' "'A good few twins, too, I hear.' "'How many by half? Yes, tis very queer lambin' this year. We shan't be done by Lady Day.' "'And last year twere all over by sexagesimine Sunday,' Joseph remarked. "'Bring on the rest, Cain,' said Gabriel, "'and then run back to the ewes. I'll follow you soon.' Caney Ball, a cheery-faced young lad with a small circular orifice by way of mouth, advanced and deposited two others, and retired as he was bidden. Oak lowered the lambs from their unnatural elevation, wrapped them in hay, and placed them round the fire. "'We've no lambin' hoe here as I used to have at Norcombe,' said Gabriel, "'and tis such a plague to bring the weakly ones to a house.' "'If it wasn't for your place here, Malter, I don't know what I should do with this keen weather. And how is it with you to-day, Malter?' "'Ah, neither sick nor sorry, Shepherd, but no younger.' "'Aye, I understand.' "'Sit down, Shepherd Oak,' 
continued the ancient man of malt. "'And how was the old place at Norcombe when you went for your dog? I should like to see the old familiar spot. But, faith, I shouldn't know a soul there now.' "'I suppose you wouldn't. It is altered very much.' "'Is it true that Dicky Hill's wooden cider-house is pulled down?' "'Ah, oh, yes, years ago, and Dicky's cottage just above it.' "'Well, to be sure.' "'Yes, and Tompkins's old apple-tree is rooted. They used to bear two hogsheads of cider, and no help from other trees.' "'Rooted, you don't say it. <laughs> stirring times we live in, stirring times. "'And you can mind that old well that used to be in the middle of the place?' That's turned into a solid iron pump with a large stone trough and all complete. There, dear, how the face of nations alter, and what we live to see nowadays. Yes, tis the same here. They've been talking but now of the missus's strange doings. What have you been saying about her? inquired Oak, sharply turning to the rest and getting very warm. These middle-aged men have been pulling her over the coals for pride and vanity, said Mark Clark. But I say, let her have rope enough. Bless her pretty face, shouldn't I like to do so, upon her cherry lips. The gallant Mark Clark here made a peculiar and well-known sound with his own. Mark, said Gabriel sternly, now you mind this, none of that dalliance talk, that smack and coddle style of yours about Miss Everdeen. I don't allow it, do you hear? With all my heart, I've no chance, replied Mr. Clark cordially. "'I suppose you have been speaking against her?' said Oak, turning to Joseph Poorgrass with a very grim look. "'No, no, not a word. I, tis a real joyful thing that she's no worse, that's what I say,' said Joseph, trembling and blushing with terror. "'Matthew just said—' "'Matthew Moon, what have you been saying?' asked Oak. "'I? Well, you know, I wouldn't arm a worm. No, not one underground worm,' said Matthew Moon, looking very uneasy. "'Well, somebody has. And look here, neighbours. Gabriel, though one of the quietest and most gentle men on earth, rose to the occasion with martial promptness and vigour. "'That's my fist.' Here he placed his fist, rather smaller in size than a common loaf, in the mathematical centre of the malter's little table, and with it gave a bump or two thereon, as if to ensure that their eyes all thoroughly took in the idea of fistiness before he went further. Now. The first man in the parish that I hear prophesying bad of our mistress. Why, here the fist was raised and let fall as Thor might have done with his hammer in essaying it. He'll smell and taste that, or I'm a Dutchman. All earnestly expressed by their features that their minds did not wander to Holland for a moment on account of this statement, but were deploring the difference which gave rise to the figure, and Mark Clark cried, "Here, here! Just what I should have said." The dog George looked up at the same time after the shepherd's menace, and, though he understood English but imperfectly, began to growl. "'Now don't you take on so, shepherd, and sit down,' said Henry, with a deprecating peacefulness, equal to anything of the kind in Christianity. "'We hear that ye be an extraordinary good and clever man, shepherd,' said Joseph Poorgrass, with considerable anxiety from behind the maltster's bedstead, whither he had retired for safety. "'Tis a great thing to be clever, I'm sure,' he added making movements associated with states of mind rather than body. "'We wish we were, don't we, neighbours? "'Aye, that we do, sure,' said Matthew Moon, with a small, anxious laugh towards Oak, to show how very friendly disposed he was likewise. 
"'Who's been telling you I'm clever?' said Oak. "'Tis blowed about from pillar to post quite common,' said Matthew. "'We hear that you can tell the time as well by the stars as we can by the sun and moon, Shepherd.' "'Yes, I can do a little that way,' said Gabriel, as a man of medium sentiments on the subject. "'And that you can make sundials and print folks' names upon their wagons almost like copperplate, with beautiful flourishes and great long tails. A excellent fine thing for you to be such a clever man, Shepherd.' Joseph Poorgrass used to print Farmer James Everdeen's wagons before you came, and I could never mind which way to turn the J's and the E's. Could he, Joseph? Joseph shook his head to express how absolute was the fact that he couldn't. And so you used to do him the wrong way, like this, didn't you, Joseph? Matthew marked on the dusty floor with his whip-handle. The word James appears here with the J and the E printed backwards. And how Farmer James had cuss! "'And call he a fool, wouldn't he, Joseph, "'when I seed his name looking so inside out like?' "'continued Matthew Moon with feeling. "'Ah, I would,' said Joseph meekly. "'But, you see, I wasn't so much to blame. "'For them J's and E's be such trying sons of witches "'for the memory to mind whether they face backward or forward. "'And I always had such a forgetful memory, too. "'Tis a very bad affliction for you, "'being such a man of calamities in other ways. "'Well, tis but a happy providence order that it should be no worse, and I may feel my thanks. As to Shepherd there, I'm sure Mrs. ought to have made her Bailey, such a fitting man for it as you be. I don't mind owning that I expected it, said Oak frankly. Indeed, I hoped for the place. At the same time, Miss Everdeen has a right to be her own Bailey if she chooses, and to keep me down to be a common shepherd only. Oak drew a slow breath, looked sadly into the bright ash-pit, and seemed lost in thoughts not of the most hopeful hue. The genial warmth of the fire now began to stimulate the nearly lifeless lambs to bleat and move their limbs briskly upon the hay, and to recognise for the first time the fact that they were born. Their noise increased to a chorus of baas, upon which Oak pulled the milk-can from before the fire and taking a small teapot from the pocket of his smock-frock, filled it with milk, and thought those of the helpless creatures, which were not to be restored to their dams, how to drink from the spout, a trick they acquired with astonishing aptitude. "'And she don't even let you take the skins of the dead lambs, I hear,' resumed Joseph Poorgrass, his eyes lingering on the operations of Oak with the necessary melancholy. "'I don't have em, said Gabriel. "'He be very badly used, Shepherd.' hazarded Joseph again, in the hope of getting Oak as an ally in lamentation after all. "'I think she's took against thee. That I do.' "'Oh, no, not at all,' replied Gabriel hastily, and a sigh escaped him, which the deprivation of lambskins could hardly have caused. Before any further remark had been added, a shade darkened the door, and Boldwood entered the malt-house, bestowing upon each a nod of equality between friendliness and condescension. "'Ah, Oak, I thought you were here,' he said. "'I met the mail-cart ten minutes ago, and a letter was put into my hand, which I opened without reading the address. I believe it's yours. You must excuse the accident, please.' "'Oh, yes, not a bit of difference, Mr. Boldwood, not a bit,' said Gabriel readily. He had not a correspondent on earth, nor was there a possible letter coming to him whose contents the whole parish would not have been welcome to peruse. Oak stepped aside and read the following in an unknown hand. Dear friend, I do not know your name, but I think these few lines will reach you, 
which I wrote to thank you for your kindness to me the night I left Weatherbury in a reckless way. I also returned the money I owe you, which you will excuse my not keeping as a gift. All has ended well, and I am happy to say I am going to be married to the young man who has courted me for some time, Sergeant Troy, of the Eleventh Dragoon Guards, now quartered in this town. He would, I know, object to my having received anything except as a loan, being a man of great respectability and high honour, indeed a noble man by blood. I should be much obliged to you if you would keep the contents of this letter a secret for the present, dear friend. We mean to surprise Weatherbury by coming there soon as husband and wife, though I blush to state it to one nearly a stranger. The sergeant grew up in Weatherbury. Thanking you again for your kindness, I am your sincere well-wisher, Fanny Robin. Have you read it, Mr. Boldwood? said Gabriel. If not, you had better do so. I know you are interested in Fanny Robin. Boldwood read the letter and looked grieved. Fanny, poor Fanny! The end she is so confident of has not yet come. She should remember, and may never come. I see she gives no address. "'What sort of man is this Sergeant Troy?' said Gabriel. Mm, "'I'm afraid not one to build much hope upon in a case such as this,' the farmer murmured, though he's a clever fellow, and up to everything. A slight romance attaches to him, too. His mother was a French governess, and it seems that a secret attachment existed between her and the late Lord Severn. She was married to a poor medical man, and soon after an infant was born, and while money was forthcoming all went on well. Unfortunately for her boy his best friends died, and he got then a situation as second clerk at a lawyer's in Casterbridge. He stayed there for some time, and might have worked himself into a dignified position of some sort had he not indulged in the wild freak of enlisting. Ah, I have much doubt if ever little Fanny will surprise us in the way she mentions. Very much doubt. "'Silly girl, silly girl!' The door was hurriedly burst open again, and in came running Caney Ball out of breath, his mouth red and open like the bell of a penny trumpet, from which he coughed with noisy vigour and great distension of face. "'Now, Cain Ball,' said Oak sternly, "'why will you run so fast and lose your breath so? I'm always telling you of it.' "'Oh, a puff of me breath went the wrong way, please, Mr. Oak.' and made me cough. <coughs> well, what have you come for? I've run to tell you, said the junior shepherd, supporting his exhausted, youthful frame against the doorpost, that you must come directly. Two more ewes of twin. That's what's the matter, Shepherd Oak. Oh, that's it, said Oak, jumping up and dismissing for the present his thoughts on poor Fanny. You're a good boy to run and tell me, Cain and you should smell a large plum pudding some day as a treat. But before you go, Cain, you bring the tar-pot, and we mark this lot, and I've done with him. Oak took from his illimitable pockets a marking-iron, dipped it into the pot, and imprinted on the buttocks of the infant sheep the initials of her he delighted to muse on, B.E., which signified to all the region round that henceforth the lambs belonged to Farmer Bathsheba Everdeen, and to no one else. Now, Caney, shoulder your two and off. Good morning, Mr. Boldwood. The shepherd lifted the sixteen large legs and four small bodies he himself had brought, and vanished with them in the direction of the lambing-field hard by, their frames being now in a sleek and hopeful state, pleasantly contrasting with their death's-door plight of half an hour before. Boldwood followed him a little way up the field, hesitated, and turned back. 
he followed him again with a last resolve, annihilating return. On approaching the nook in which the fold was constructed, the farmer drew out his pocket-book, unfastened it, and allowed it to lie open on his hand. A letter was revealed. Bathsheba's. "'I was going to ask you, Oak,' he said, with unreal carelessness, "'if you know whose writing this is.' Oak glanced into the book, and replied instantly with a flushed face, "'Miss Everdeen's.' Oak had coloured simply at the consciousness of sounding her name. He now felt a strangely distressing qualm from a new thought. The letter could, of course, be no other than anonymous, or the inquiry would not have been necessary. Boldwood mistook his confusion. Sensitive persons are always ready with their is it I, in preference to objective reasoning. The question was perfectly fair, he returned, and there was something incongruous in the serious earnestness with which he applied himself to an argument on a valentine. You know it is always expected that privy inquiries will be made. That's where the fun lies. If the word fun had been torture, it could not have been uttered with a more constrained and restless countenance than was Boldwood's then. Soon parting from Gabriel, the lonely and reserved man returned to his house to breakfast, feeling twinges of shame and regret, and having so far exposed his mood by those fevered questions to a stranger. He again placed the letter on the mantelpiece, and sat down to think of the circumstances attending it by the light of Gabriel's information. End of chapter 15「Sixteen of Far from the Madding Crowd – This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter 16 All Saints and All Souls On a weekday morning a small congregation, consisting mainly of women and girls, rose from its knees in the mouldy nave of a church called All Saints, in the distant barrack-town before mentioned, at the end of a service without a sermon. They were about to disperse when a smart footstep, entering the porch and coming up the central passage, arrested their attention. The step echoed with a ring unusual in a church. It was the clink of spurs. Everybody looked. A young cavalry soldier in a red uniform, with the three chevrons of a sergeant upon his sleeve, strode up the aisle with an embarrassment which was only the more marked by the intense vigour of his step, and by the determination upon his face to show none. A slight flush had mounted his cheek by the time he had run the gauntlet between these women, but passing on through the chancel arch he never paused till he came close to the altar railing. Here for a moment he stood alone. The officiating curate, who had not yet doffed his surplice, perceived the newcomer and followed him to the communion space. He whispered to the soldier. Then he beckoned to the clerk, who in his turn whispered to an elderly woman, apparently his wife, and they also went up the chancel steps. "'Tis a wedding," murmured some of the women, brightening. "'Let's wait.' The majority again sat down. There was a creaking of machinery behind, and some of the young ones turned their heads. From the interior face of the west wall of the tower projected a little canopy, with a quarter-jack and small bell beneath it, the automation being driven by the same clock machinery that struck the large bell in the tower. Between the tower and the church was a close screen, the door of which was kept shut during services, hiding this grotesque clockwork from sight. At present, however, the door was open, 
and the egress of the jack, the blows on the bell, and the mannequin's retreat into the nook again were visible to many, and audible throughout the church. The jack had struck half-past eleven. "'Where's the woman?' whispered some of the spectators. The young sergeant stood still with the abnormal rigidity of the old pillars around. He faced the south-east, and was as silent as he was still. The silence grew to be a noticeable thing as the minutes went on, and nobody else appeared, and not a soul moved. The rattle of the quarter-jack again from its niche, its blows for three-quarters, its fussy retreat, were almost painfully abrupt, and caused many of the congregation to start palpably. "'I wonder where the woman is,' a voice whispered again. There began now that slight shifting of feet, that artificial coughing among several, which betrays a nervous suspense. At length there was a titter. But the soldier never moved. There he stood, his face to the south-east, upright as a column, his cap in his hand. The clock ticked on. The women threw off their nervousness, and titters and giggles became more frequent. Then came a dead silence. Everyone was waiting for the end. Some persons may have noticed how extraordinarily the striking of quarters seems to quicken the flight of time. It was hardly credible that the jack had not got wrong with the minutes when the rattle began again, the puppet emerged, and the four quarters were struck fitfully as before. One could almost be positive that there was a malicious leer upon the hideous creature's face, and a mischievous delight in its twitchings. Then followed the dull and remote resonance of the twelve heavy strokes in the tower above. The women were impressed, and there was no giggle this time. The clergyman glided into the vestry, and the clerk vanished. The sergeant had not yet turned. Every woman in the church was waiting to see his face, and he appeared to know it. At last he did turn, and stalked resolutely down the nave, braving them all with a compressed lip. Two bowed and toothless old almsmen then looked at each other and chuckled innocently enough, but the sound had a strange, weird effect in that place. Opposite to the church was a paved square, around which several overhanging wood buildings of old time cast a picturesque shade. The young man, on leaving the door, went to cross the square when, in the middle, he met a little woman. The expression of her face, which had been one of intense anxiety, sank at the sight of his nearly to terror. "'Well,' he said, in a suppressed passion, fixedly looking at her, "'Oh, Frank, I made a mistake. I thought that the church with the spire was all saints, and I was at the door at half-past eleven to a minute, as you said. I waited till quarter to twelve, and found then that I was at all souls, but I wasn't much frightened, for I thought it could be to-morrow as well.' "'You fool, for fooling me!' but say no more. "'Shall it be to-morrow, Frank?' she asked blankly. "'To-morrow!' And he gave vent to a hoarse laugh. <laughs> ah, "'I won't go through that experience again for some time, I warrant you.' "'But after all,' she expostulated in a trembling voice, "'the mistake was not such a terrible thing. Now, dear Frank, when shall it be?' "'Ah, when, God knows.' he said with a light irony, and, turning from her, walked rapidly away. End of chapter 16
This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Seventeen. In the Marketplace. On Saturday, Boldwood was in Castlebridge Market House as usual when the disturber of his dreams entered and became visible to him. Adam had awakened from his deep sleep, and behold, there was Eve. The farmer took courage, and for the first time really looked at her. Material causes and emotional effects are not to be arranged in regular equation. The result from capital employment in the production of any movement of a mental nature is sometimes as tremendous as the cause itself is absurdly minute. When women are in a freakish mood, their usual intuition, either from carelessness or inherent defect, seemingly fails to teach them this, and hence it was that Bathsheba was fated to be astonished to-day. Boldwood looked at her, not slyly, critically, or understandingly, but blankly at gaze, in the way a reaper looks at a passing train, as something foreign to his element, and but dimly understood. To Boldwood women had been remote phenomena, rather than necessary compliments. Comets of such uncertain aspect, movement, and permanence, that whether their orbits were as geometrical, unchangeable, and as subject to laws as his own, or as absolutely erratic as they superficially appeared, he had not deemed it his duty to consider. He saw her black hair, her correct facial curves and profile, and the roundness of her chin and throat. He saw then the side of her eyelids, eyes and lashes, and the shape of her ear. Next he noticed her figure, her skirt, and the very soles of her shoes. Boldwood thought her beautiful, but wondered whether he was right in his thought, for it seemed impossible that this romance in the flesh, if so sweet as he imagined, could have been going on long without creating a commotion of delight among men, and provoking more inquiry than Bathsheba had done, even though that was not a little. To the best of his judgment, neither nature nor art could improve this perfect one of an imperfect many. His heart began to move within him. Boldwood, it must be remembered, though forty years of age, had never before inspected a woman with the very centre and force of his glance. They had struck upon all his senses at wide angles. Was she really beautiful? He could not assure himself that this opinion was true even now. He furtively said to a neighbour, is Miss Everdeen considered handsome? Oh, yes. She was a good deal noticed the first time she came, if you remember. A very handsome girl indeed. A man is never more credulous than in receiving favourable opinions on the beauty of a woman he is half, or quite in love with. A mere child's word on the point has the weight of an or a's. Boldwood was satisfied now. And this charming woman had in effect said to him, Marry me. Why should she have done that strange thing? Boldwood's blindness to the difference between approving of what circumstances suggest and originating what they do not suggest was well matched by Bathsheba's insensibility to the possibly great issues of little beginnings. She was at this moment coolly dealing with a dashing young farmer, adding up accounts with him as indifferently as if his face had been the pages of a ledger. It was evident that such a nature as his had no attraction for a woman of Bathsheba's taste. But Boldwood grew hot down to his hands with an incipient jealousy. He trod for the first time the threshold of the injured lover's hell. His first impulse was to go and thrust himself between them, 
This could be done, but only in one way, by asking to see a sample of her corn. Boldwood renounced the idea. He could not make the request. It was debasing loveliness to ask it to buy and sell, and jarred with his conceptions of her. All this time Bathsheba was conscious of having broken into that dignified stronghold at last. His eyes, she knew, were following her everywhere. This was a triumph, and had it come naturally, such a triumph would have been the sweeter to her for this peaking delay. But it had been brought about by misdirected ingenuity, and she valued it only as she valued an artificial flower or a wax fruit. Being a woman with some good sense in reasoning on subjects wherein her heart was not involved, Bathsheba genuinely repented that a freak which had owed its existence as much to Liddy as to herself should ever have been undertaken to disturb the placidity of a man she respected too highly to deliberately tease. She that day nearly formed the intention of begging his pardon on the very next occasion of their meeting. The worst features of this arrangement were that, if he thought she ridiculed him, an apology would increase the offence by being disbelieved, and if he thought she wanted him to woo her, it would read like additional evidence of her forwardness. End of chapter 17「Eighteen of Far from the Madding Crowd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyg Hines. Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Eighteen. Boldwood in Meditation. Regret. Boldwood was tenant of what was called Little Weatherbury Farm, and his person was the nearest approach to aristocracy that this remoter quarter of the parish could boast of. Genteel strangers, whose god was their town, who might happen to be compelled to linger about this nook for a day, heard the sound of light wheels, and prayed to see good society, to the degree of a solitary lord or squire at the very least, but it was only Mr. Boldwood going out for the day. They heard the sound of wheels yet once more, and were reanimated to expectancy. It was only Mr. Boldwood coming home again. His house stood recessed from the road, and the stables, which are to a farm what a fireplace is to a room, were behind, their lower portions being lost amid bushes of laurel. Inside the blue door, open half-way down, were to be seen at this time the backs and tails of half a dozen warm and contented horses standing in their stalls, and, thus viewed, they presented alternations of roan and bay, in shapes like a moorish arch the tail being a streak down the midst of each. Over these, and lost to the eye gazing in from the outer light, the mouths of the same animals could be heard busily sustaining the above-named warmth and plumpness by quantities of oats and hay. The restless and shadowy figure of a colt wandered about a loose-box at the end, whilst the steady grind of all the eaters was occasionally diversified by the rattle of a rope or the stamp of a foot. Pacing up and down at the heels of the animals was Farmer Boldwood himself. This place was his almonry and cloister in one. Here, after looking to the feeding of his four-footed dependents, the celibate would walk and meditate of an evening till the moon's rays streamed in through the cobwebbed windows, or total darkness enveloped the scene. His square-framed perpendicularity showed more fully now than in the crowd and bustle of the market-house. In this meditative walk his foot met the floor with heel and toe simultaneously, 
and his fine reddish-fleshed face was bent downwards, just enough to render obscure the still mouth and the well-rounded, though rather prominent and broad, chin. A few clear and thread-like horizontal lines were the only interruption to the otherwise smooth surface of his large forehead. The phases of Boldwood's life were ordinary enough, but his was not an ordinary nature. That stillness, which struck casual observers more than anything else in his character and habit, and seemed so precisely like the rest of inanition, may have been the perfect balance of enormous antagonistic forces, positives and negatives in fine adjustment. His equilibrium disturbed, he was in extremity at once. If an emotion possessed him at all, it ruled him. A feeling not mastering him was entirely latent. Stagnant or rapid, it was never slow. He was always hit mortally, or he was missed. He had no light and careless touches in his constitution, either for good or evil. Stern in the outlines of action, mild in the details, he was serious throughout all. He saw no absurd sides to the follies of life, and thus, though not quite companionable in the eyes of merry men and scoffers, and those to whom all things show life as a jest, he was not intolerable to the earnest and those acquainted with grief. Being a man who read all the dramas of life seriously, if he failed to please when they were comedies, there was no frivolous treatment to reproach him for when they chanced to end tragically. Bathsheba was far from dreaming that the dark and silent shape upon which she had so carelessly thrown a seed was a hotbed of tropic intensity. Had she known Boldwood's moods, her blame would have been fearful, and the stain upon her heart ineradicable. Moreover, had she known her present power for good or evil over this man, she would have trembled at the responsibility. Luckily for her present, unluckily for her future tranquillity, her understanding had not yet told her what Boldwood was. Nobody knew entirely, for though it was possible to form guesses concerning his wild capabilities from old floodmarks faintly visible, he had never been seen at the high tides which caused them. Farmer Boldwood came to the stable door, and looked forth across the level fields. Beyond the first enclosure was a hedge, and on the other side was a meadow belonging to Bathsheba's farm. It was now early spring, the time of going to grass with the sheep, when they have the first feed of the meadows, before these are laid up for mowing. The wind, which had been blowing east for several weeks, had veered to the southward, and the middle of spring had come abruptly almost without a beginning. It was that period in the vernal quarter when we may suppose the dryads to be waking for the season. The vegetable world begins to move and swell and the saps to rise, till in the completest silence of lone gardens and trackless plantations, where everything seems helpless and still after the bond and slavery of frost, there are bustlings, strainings, united thrusts and pulls altogether, in comparison with which the powerful tugs of cranes and pulleys in a noisy city are but pygmy efforts. Boldwood, looking into the distant meadows, saw there three figures. They were those of Miss Everdeen, Shepherd Oak, and Caney Ball. When Bathsheba's figure shone upon the farmer's eyes, it lighted him up, as the moon lights up a great tower. A man's body is as the shell or the tablet of a soul, as he is reserved or ingenuous, overflowing or self-contained. There was a change in Boldwood's exterior from its former impassibleness, and his face showed that he was now living outside his defences for the first time, 
and with a fearful sense of exposure. It is the usual experience of strong natures when they love. At last he arrived at a conclusion. It was to go across and inquire boldly of her. The insulation of his heart by reserve during these many years, without a channel of any kind for disposable emotion, had worked its effect. It had been observed more than once that the causes of love are chiefly subjective, and Boldwood was a living testimony to the truth of the proposition. No mother existed to absorb his devotion, no sister for his tenderness, no idle ties for sense. He became surcharged with the compound, which was genuine lover's love. He approached the gate of the meadow. Beyond it the ground was melodious with ripples, the sky with larks, the low bleeding of the flock mingling with both. Mistress and man were engaged in the operation of making a lamb take, which is performed whenever a ewe has lost her own offspring, one of the twins of another ewe being given her as a substitute. Gabriel had skinned the dead lamb, and was tying the skin over the body of the live lamb in the customary manner whilst Bathsheba was holding open a little pen of four hurdles, into which the mother and foisted lamb were driven, where they would remain till the old sheep conceives an affection for the young one. Bathsheba looked up at the completion of the manoeuvre, and saw the farmer by the gate, where he was overhung by a willow-tree in full bloom. Gabriel, to whom her face was as the uncertain glory of an April day, was ever regardful of its faintest changes, and instantly discerned thereon the mark of some influence from without, in the form of a keenly self-conscious reddening. He also turned and beheld Boldwood. At once connecting these signs with the letter Boldwood had shown him, Gabriel suspected her of some coquettish procedure begun by that means, and carried on since he knew not how. Farmer Boldwood had read the pantomime denoting that they were aware of his presence and the perception was as too much light turned upon his new sensibility. He was still in the road, and by moving on he hoped that neither would recognise that he had originally intended to enter the field. He passed by with an utter and overwhelming sensation of ignorance, shyness, and doubt. Perhaps in her manner there were signs that she wished to see him. Perhaps not. He could not read a woman. The cabala of his erotic philosophy seemed to consist of the subtlest meanings expressed in misleading ways. Every turn, look, word, and accent contained a mystery quite distinct from its obvious import, and not one had ever been pondered by him until now. As for Bathsheba, she was not deceived into the belief that Farmer Boldwood had walked by on business or in idleness. She collected the probabilities of the case, and concluded that she was herself responsible for Boldwood's appearance there. It troubled her much to see what a great flame a little wildfire was likely to kindle. Bathsheba was no schemer for marriage, nor was she deliberately a trifler with the affections of men, and a censor's experience on seeing an actual flirt after observing her would have been a feeling of surprise that Bathsheba could be so different from such a one and yet so like what a flirt is supposed to be. She resolved never again, by look or by sign, to interrupt the steady flow of this man's life, but a resolution to avoid an evil is seldom framed till the evil is so far advanced as to make avoidance impossible. End of chapter 18this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tig Hines. 
Far from the Madding Crowd by Thomas Hardy. Chapter Nineteen. The Sheep Washing. The Offer. Boldwood did eventually call upon her. She was not at home. Of course not, he murmured. In contemplating Bathsheba as a woman, he had forgotten the accidents of her position as an agriculturalist, that being as much of a farmer, and as extensive a farmer, as himself, her probable whereabouts was out of doors at this time of the year. This and the other oversights Boldwood was guilty of were natural to the mood, and still more natural to the circumstances. The great aids to idealization in love were present here occasional observation of her from a distance, and the absence of social intercourse with her, visual familiarity, oral strangeness. The smaller human elements were kept out of sight. The pettinesses that enter so largely into all earthly living and doing were disguised by the accident of lover and loved one not being on visiting terms, and there was hardly awakened a thought in Boldwood that sorry household realities appertained to her or that she, like all others, had moments of commonplace, when to be least plainly seen was to be most prettily remembered. Thus a mild sort of apotheosis took place in his fancy, whilst she still lived and breathed within his own horizon a troubled creature like himself. It was the end of May when the farmer determined to be no longer repulsed by trivialities or distracted by suspense. He had by this time grown used to being in love. The passion now startled him less even when it tortured him more, and he felt himself adequate to the situation. On inquiring for her at her house they had told him she was at the sheep-washing, and he went off to seek her there. The sheep-washing pool was a perfectly circular basin of brickwork in the meadows, full of the clearest water. To birds on the wing its glassy surface, reflecting the light sky, must have been visible for miles around as a glistening cyclops eye in a green face. The grass about the margin at this season was a sight to remember long, in a minor sort of way. Its activity in sucking the moisture from the rich, damp sod was almost a process observable by the eye. The outskirts of this level water-meadow were diversified by rounded and hollow pastures, where just now every flower that was not a buttercup was a daisy. The river slid along noiselessly as a shade, the swelling reeds and sedge forming a flexible palisade upon its moist brink. To the north of the mead were trees, the leaves of which were new, soft and moist, not yet having stiffened and darkened under summer sun and drought, their colour being yellow beside a green, green beside a yellow. From the recesses of this knot of foliage the loud notes of three cuckoos were resounding through the still air. Boldwood went meditating down the slopes with his eyes on his boots, which the yellow pollen from the buttercups had bronzed in artistic gradations. A tributary of the main stream flowed through the basin of the pool by an inlet and outlet at opposite points of its diameter. Shepherd oak, Jan Coggan, moon, poor grass, cane ball, and several others were assembled here, all dripping wet to the very roots of their hair, and Bathsheba was standing by in a new riding habit the most elegant she had ever worn, the reins of her horse being looped over her arm. Flagons of cider were rolling about upon the green. The meek sheep were pushed into the pool by Coggan and Matthew Moon, who stood by the lower hatch immersed to their waists. 
Then Gabriel, who stood on the brink, thrust them under as they swam along, with an instrument like a crutch formed for the purpose, and also for assisting the exhausted animals when the wool became saturated and they began to sink. They were let out against the stream, and through the upper opening all impurities flowing away below. Caney Ball and Joseph, who performed this latter operation, were, if possible, wetter than the rest. They resembled dolphins under a fountain, every protuberance and angle of their clothes dribbling forth a small rill. Boldwood came close and bade her good morning, with such constraint that she could not but think he had stepped across to the washing for its own sake, hoping not to find her there. More, she fancied his brow severe and his eyes slighting. Bathsheba immediately contrived to withdraw, and glided along by the river till she was a stone's throw off. She heard footsteps brushing the grass, and had a consciousness that love was encircling her like a perfume. Instead of turning or waiting, Bathsheba went further among the high sedges. But Boldwood seemed determined, and pressed on till they were completely past the bend of the river. Here, without being seen, they could hear the splashing and shouts of the washers above. "'Miss Everdeen,' said the farmer. She trembled, turned, and said, "'Good morning.' His tone was so utterly removed from all she had expected as a beginning. It was lowness and quiet accentuated, an emphasis of deep meanings, their form at the same time being scarcely expressed. Silence has sometimes a remarkable power of showing itself as the disembodied soul of feeling wandering without its carcass, and it is then more impressive than speech. In the same way, to say a little is often to tell more than to say a great deal. Boldwood told everything in that word. As the consciousness expands on learning that what was fancied to be the rumble of wheels is the reverberation of thunder, so did Bathsheba's at her intuitive conviction. "'I feel almost too much to think,' he said with a solemn simplicity. I have come to speak to you without preface. My life is not my own since I have beheld you clearly, Miss Everdeen. I come to make you an offer of marriage." Bathsheba tried to preserve an absolutely neutral countenance, and all the motion she made was that of closing lips which had previously been a little parted. "'I am now forty-one years old,' he went on. I may have been called a confirmed bachelor, and I was a confirmed bachelor. I had never any views of myself as a husband in my earlier days, nor have I made any calculation on the subject since I have been older. But we all change, and my change in this matter came with seeing you. I have felt lately more and more that my present way of living is bad in every respect. Beyond all things I want you as my wife. I feel, Mr. Boldwood, that though I respect you much I do not feel uh, what would justify me to in accepting your offer," she stammered. This giving back of dignity for dignity seemed to open the sluices of feeling that Boldwood had as yet kept closed. "'My life is a burden without you,' he exclaimed in a low voice. "'I want you—I want you to let me say I love you again and again.' Bathsheba answered nothing, and the horse upon her arm seemed so impressed that instead of cropping the herbage she looked up. "'I think and hope you care enough for me to listen to what I have to tell.' Bathsheba's momentary impulse at hearing this was to ask why he thought that, till she remembered that, far from being a conceited assumption on Boldwood's part, 
It was but the natural conclusion of serious reflection, based on deceptive premises of her own offering. "'I wish I could say courteous flatteries to you,' the farmer continued in an easier tone, and put my rugged feeling into a graceful shape, but I have neither power nor patience to learn such things. I want you for my wife, so wildly that no other feeling can abide in me. But I should not have spoken out had I not been led to hope. The valentine again, oh, that valentine, she said to herself, but not a word to him. If you can love me, say so, Miss Everdeen. If not, don't say no. Mr. Boldwood, it is painful to have to say I am surprised, so that I don't know how to answer you with propriety and respect, but I am only just able to speak out my feeling, I mean my meaning, that I am afraid I can't marry you, much as I respect you. You are too dignified for me to suit you, sir. But, Miss Everdeen— I—I didn't—I know I ought never have dreamt of sending that valentine. Forgive me, sir. It was a wanton thing which no woman with any self-respect would have done. If you will only pardon my thoughtlessness, I promise never to. No, 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 don't say thoughtlessness. Make me think it was something more, that it was a sort of prophetic instinct, the beginning of a feeling that you would like me. You torture me to say it was done in thoughtlessness. I never thought of it in that light, and I can't endure it. Ah, I wish I knew how to win you, but that I can't do. I can only ask if I have already got you. If I have not, and it is not true that you have come unwittingly to me as I have to you, I can say no more. I have not fallen in love with you, Mr. Boldwood. Certainly I must say that. She allowed a very small smile to creep for the first time over her serious face in saying this, and the white row of upper teeth and keenly cut lips already noticed suggested an idea of heartlessness which was immediately contradicted by the pleasant eyes. But will you just think, in kindness and condescension, think, if you cannot bear with me as a husband? I fear I am too old for you, but believe me, I will take more care of you than would many a man of your own age. I will protect and cherish you with all my strength. I will indeed. You shall have no cares, be worried by no household affairs, and live quite at ease, Miss Everdeen. The dairy superintendent shall be done by a man. I can afford it well. You shall never have so much as to look out of doors at haymaking time, or to think of weather in the harvest. I'd rather cling to the chaise, because it is the same my poor father and mother drove, but if you don't like it, I will sell it, and you shall have a pony-carriage of your own. I cannot say how far above every other idea and object on earth you seem to me. Nobody knows, and God only knows, how much you are to me. Bathsheba's heart was young, and it swelled with sympathy for the deep-natured man who spoke so simply. "'Don't say it! Don't! I cannot bear you to feel so much, and me to feel nothing. And I am afraid they will notice us, Mr. Boldwood. Will you let the matter rest now? I cannot think collectedly. I did not know you were going to say this to me. Oh, I am wicked to have made you suffer so!' She was frightened as well as agitated at his vehemence. Say, then, that you don't absolutely refuse. Do not quite refuse. I can do nothing. I cannot answer. I may speak to you again on the subject? Yes. I may think of you. Yes, I suppose you may think of me. And hope to obtain you? No, do not hope. Let us go on. I will call upon you again to-morrow. No, please not. Give me time. 
"'Yes, I will give you any time,' he said earnestly and gratefully. "'I am happier now.' "'No, I beg you. Don't be happier if happiness only comes from my agreeing. Be neutral, Mr. Boldwood. I must think.' "'I will wait,' he said. And then she turned away. Boldwood dropped his gaze to the ground, and stood long like a man who did not know where he was. Realities then returned upon him, like the pain of a wound received in an excitement which eclipses it, and he, too, then went on. End of chapter 19「in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.